Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thanks, Wes. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here. How are you doing this morning? You good? Had a good weekend, hopefully. Uh, our family's had a good weekend. We had a, kind of a rough night last night, though. Our air conditioning went out uh, last night, and so... Um, I know that that kind of classifies as a first world problem, but if your air conditioning goes out in August in, in Arizona, I don't care what world problem it is, it's just a problem. And so it was a little rough last night for us. I'm happy to be here this morning where we've got air conditioning that's working. I may have to end up sleeping here tonight, but uh, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm dragging a little bit, so if you guys, uh, you know, if you can help me along, give me a little bit of energy this morning, I'd appreciate that. If you've been waiting, you know, to, to, to yell out amen whenever you want to during a service, not really sure when to do that, which Sunday that might be, this is that Sunday, because I need some energy, I need a little bit of help from you guys, so deal? All right, all right, all right, so, so <laughs> there we go, we're off to a good start, that's awesome, thank you for having my back. But I'm even more excited to be here this morning because we're starting into our second week, continuing the new series that we started last week called The Flourishing Church. Uh, we, uh, as we talked about last week and introduced the book, we're going to be going through the book of Jeremiah, or at least looking at the book of Jeremiah, specifically Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, looking at a specific piece of that, and we're going to be talking through the next 12 weeks of how God calls us as his people, just like he did the, the exiles in Babylon to be his people in the place where we are planted, in the place where we are. And we asked the question last week, we spent a lot of time talking about this idea of what does it mean to be a flourishing church? And part of the uh, conclusion that we came to is that flourishing means that we are healthy, but also that we are continuing to grow. And that ultimately, that as God's people, that as a flourishing church not only grows for its own sake, but a flourishing church actually spills out into the world around us, outside of our community, outside of our doors, outside of our walls, to impact the city and the community in which we have been placed by God so that they experience flourishing as well. The world experiences flourishing as well. And I know that that is a big vision, but that is how God envisions his church. That is how God envisions his people to live. Not just as a church that's flourishing for its own sake, but a church that brings flourishing to the world around it. So speaking of last week, we covered a lot of ground. So I want to review a few of the essential points that we made, essential pieces that we talked about last week. And the first of which is we looked at 12 different callings that come out of Jeremiah chapter 29. There's a letter in Jeremiah chapter 29 that makes up the first half of this chapter. And we see it in verses 4 through 14. Now out of that letter, a letter that was written by Jeremiah to the exiles on behalf of God, this is God's word to the exiles in Babylon, the Israelite exiles in Babylon, we see 12 different callings within that letter. We can put those 12 callings up again. We went through this last week. And last week, we just kind of made a list of these and mentioned where we see them in the verses. And these are in, the, in those verses there. And then we talked about how these are going to be the next 12 messages that we go through throughout this series. But as you see in this list, as you see these different kind of titles, I want to just tell you that these are bigger headings um, that are addressing actual topics, real-life topics that we're going to work, through, work our way through uh, throughout this series. So in other words, as you see this list, right, it may not make sense to see like, okay, what does it mean to be a church who's sent, or a church who walks in God's ways, or a church who represents God to the world? We're going to talk about these things in light of what it means for us to live real-life topics and real-life issues out in our lives. So in other words, we're going to be talking about things under these headings like family and marriage, like the marketplace. What does it mean to be somebody who is on mission in the marketplace, at work? 
What does it mean to be uh, people who uh, can distinguish between truth and falsehood in the culture and the world that we're living in? We're going to talk about, about that. We're going to talk about our relationship to the world. What is, what is a proper relationship of the church to the world around us? We're going to talk about uh, issues of identity, issues of, uh, uh, of social issues that we face, political issues, all these different things are all uh, kind of under these headings of what it means for us to live as the flourishing church in the world. And we're going to look at them all from this mission perspective. What it means for the church to be on mission in the world so that we can see flourishing in our lives, but also see flourishing in the world around us related to all of these different areas of our world. And so we're starting today with really, I think, one topic that holds all the rest of these together. This question, this topic of knowing the story that we are living from. We're going to talk about what it means to know the story that we're living from. And speaking of the story that God's people are living from, last week, one of the things we also talked about was the historical setting of Jeremiah 29. And what we see is that the Israelites have found themselves in exile in Babylon as a result of their own disobedience towards God, right? God has sent prophet after prophet at this point to remind them how they've broken the covenant with him. And and God has said to them, if you continue to break the covenant, if you don't repent, if you don't change, I'm going to send an army to conquer you. You're going to be banished out of the land and exiled out into Babylon. And sure enough, they continue to disobey even after prophet after prophet comes to them. Jeremiah is one of these prophets. And as a result, they end up in exile in Babylon. Now, as the Babylonians conquer Israel, they not, only, they not only take the Israelites out to Babylon, but they burn down the city of Jerusalem, they burn down the temples there, and they starve the people with inside, inside the city. So King Nebuchadnezzar, who's one of the most notorious, brutal kings in all of ancient history, leads the Babylonian army to completely destroy Jerusalem, and then they take about 20,000 exiles back to Babylon, bound and completely naked, uh, marching them into uh, the kingdom. Now, we spent a lot of time looking at one particular verse last week, and this verse is really the key verse that comes out of this chapter. It'll be the key verse for uh, this series as well, and it's verse 7, where God tells the Israelites to seek the flourishing of the place in which they are now in captivity, really to seek the flourishing of their enemies. This is basically what God is saying. Jeremiah 29, 7, it says, "...but seek the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf." For in its flourishing, you will find your flourishing. Now look, think about this. This command that God gives right here in verse 7 doesn't come to the, to the exiles in a vacuum. It comes to them as people who have experienced the brutality of the enemies who are now oppressing them. And the same people that God is saying, you're to seek the flourishing of these people. You're to seek the flourishing of the city where you find your, yourself. You have 20,000 exiles. Probably every single one of those people who are there among the exile population either saw a friend or a family member likely starve to death or be killed as a result of the attack of Babylon on the city of Jerusalem. And then they were bound naked and marched into this new kingdom. They're scared, they're angry, they're upset, they're resentful, they don't know what's going to happen next. And one of the first things they hear God say to them is, You know all those enemies, the ones who are oppressing you, the ones who are overseeing you, the ones who dragged you back into your land, the ones who burned down your neighborhoods, your homes, and your temple, the ones who killed your family and friends? Those are the ones who I want, who who I'm calling you to pray for and to seek their flourishing in the place where you find yourself. The fires in Jerusalem probably haven't even stopped burning yet. And God says, you're to seek the flourishing of the place that you find yourself in. 
It's an amazing statement, and it makes me wonder, and here's the first personal application question for us this morning. Who is that person for you or that group of people who you might consider your enemies? And maybe you're like, well, I don't have any enemies. I'm I'm a friend to everybody, and everybody's a friend to me, and that's great. Uh, If you're that kind of person, God bless you. But somebody that you maybe have a grudge against then. Maybe they're not your enemy. Maybe you just got a grudge against them. Everybody's got one of those. But if you think about it this way, take a moment, name them. I mean, not out loud, but kind of name them in your mind. Who is that person? Someone who cheated you at work or in business. Maybe someone who has caused you deep pain from your past. A family member who has betrayed you. Somebody who has attacked your credibility or attacked a relationship in your life. We're getting more and more to a place where, like, anybody who disagrees with us politically becomes an enemy. So maybe that is for you uh, a difficulty, whatever it may be. But anyway, whoever that person is that comes to mind, I want to remind you of this fact before we even get into this discussion, that if God can say this to the ancient Israelites who are in captivity under these enemies, the true enemies of Babylon, if he can say, pray for and seek the flourishing of the ancient Babylonians who have done all this to you, then there is no excuse for any of us not to pray for and seek the flourishing of every last person in this world, whoever they may be. Now, of course, we can say that, and hopefully we believe it. I know this room is full of good-willed and well-intended people who are Jesus followers who know that Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We all know that. But at the same time, why is it so difficult for us to actually do that? I think it comes back to understanding the story that we are called to live in. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. We're going to jump back into Jeremiah chapter 29. And in this time, we're going to look at just the first few verses that start out the beginning of this letter. We're going to look at the first uh, kind of initial words that that the letter starts with in verse 4. And we're going to go all the way to verse 7, what we just read before, the calling. And what we're going to see is God uh, introducing this, this idea to the Israelites about where they are, about what he's doing in the process, and what they're to do while they wait to return ultimately to the land, or at least while they're in exile. In verse 4, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare or the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So as I said earlier, this is the beginning of the letter that God gives through the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles that are there in Babylon. And I want you to see real quickly, at the beginning of verse 4, how God introduces himself, because this is really important. You may have noticed as you're reading through the Bible that there are times where God gives himself a name or a title, like God Almighty, God Most High, the Everlasting God, to name a few. Here we see two titles that God gives himself back to back, and they're joined together, the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel. Do you see that there at the beginning of verse 4? Now, when God gives himself names in Scripture like this, he's not just giving himself like a nickname. What he's doing is actually giving himself a title that reflects on his own character and nature. 
And usually when he's doing this, he's doing this for a reason. He's doing it to communicate to his people in that moment the character, the aspect of of my nature that you need to remember in this situation. He knows what they're going through and he says, remember that I am the God Almighty. Remember I am the God Most High. Remember I am the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel. Now these titles are really critically important to what God is trying to communicate in the same way to the Israelites here. When God uses a title like this, he's using it for a reason. And the question that we have to ask is, why are these titles here and what exactly do they mean? First, let's talk about the title Lord of Hosts. Lord of Hosts literally means just the sovereign commander of armies. At times when God uses this title, he's talking about maybe the heavenly armies. So the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of the heavenly hosts, angel armies, those kinds of things. That God has sovereign command and control over, he's the general of the heavenly armies. But then there are other times, like this time right here, where he is talking about the fact that he is the sovereign commander of earthly armies as well. And the point that he's making here is that in all of this, even Babylon itself, with King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings on the earth at the time, it is God ultimately who is the one that is behind Babylon's attack on Israel. He even says in the second part of verse 4, those who are in exile whom I have sent into exile. Not whom Nebuchadnezzar sent into exile, not who Babylon sent into exile, but who I sent into exile. And here's why this is important, right? There's kind of some irony in this because we realize that God's the one who did this, but at the same time, God's the only one who can get them out of this as well. If God controls Babylon and God controls the armies that are around Israel, the reality is that he is also the God who can control and allow them to have hope to make it out and make it back home one day out of exile. But in this case, what also they see is that God is the God of judgment. He has promised that he would bring judgment if we didn't repent. He has promised that he would bring judgment if we continue to break the covenant. We continue to break the covenant, and so now we found ourselves in this place. Now, there's another title there that is joined with the Lord of Hosts title right after it, and it's the title God of Israel. Now, I actually think this title is more important than the first one, and here's why. When God says that he is the God of Israel, what he's doing is he's repeating the covenant name, the covenant title for his people. In other words, what he's saying is that even though you are in exile, and even though I'm the one who has sent Babylon to conquer you and to bring you out into exile, I am still your God. I am still the God of Israel. He's reminding them of the fact that my covenant faithfulness does not change even though you have been unfaithful. Even though you've broken the covenant over and over and over again, I am still coming to you as the God of Israel. Now, Israel is in the situation they're in because they broke their covenant with God, a covenant that goes back a thousand years by this time. And when God had delivered Israel out of Egypt back in the the Exodus and, and established the covenant with them, he told them that they would be his people as long as they obeyed his voice and kept his covenant. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 records that. This is God saying to Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now a covenant at that time worked a lot like maybe a legal contract does today. In other words, there are two parties who agree to enter into a contract, and they each have the stipulations of what they're supposed to follow on their side. Right? And if they, break those, if they break their side of the covenant, the covenant can be declared null and void, and it essentially breaks the relationship there. Now, God's covenant with Israel was much less like kind of a legal contract and more like a, 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 a relationship. 
In fact, God actually presents this as a more like a marriage relationship. God uses the analogy of his relationship with Israel repeatedly as a marriage relationship. In Jeremiah chapter 3, in fact, we see God say, like the northern kingdom, they broke their covenant with me, so I handed them a certificate, or I issued them a certificate of divorce, a representation of the fact that they broke the covenant. And so as a result, they were spiritually, they were spiritually unfaithful, and they ended up breaking the covenant. Now, a couple of years ago here at North, we went through a book called the book of Hosea. You may remember that if you were here at the time or if you're familiar with the book of Hosea. And in that entire book, there's like this background relationship that goes on where God tells Hosea from the beginning, you've got to go marry this woman, Gomer, who is a notorious prostitute in the community. And he tells him to go marry her as a representation of God's, it's like a living representation of God's relationship with Israel. And essentially what happens is uh, Hosea goes and marries Gomer, and even after they're married, she continues to do her prostitution thing, and so she's, she's with other men, she's unfaithful, she's cheating on him the entire time. He brings her back home, and then she's unfaithful again after that. And God says to Israel, just like Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea, I am like the faithful husband who is bringing you back all the time, and all you do is go back and be unfaithful over and over again with other gods. And you continue to break my covenant over and over again. Now, of course, this goes on, and what God's talking about is the disobedience and the breaking of covenant that had gone on for generation after generation, hundreds of years at this point. And so if we're reading the story, like, we can't really say that God's impatient. We can't really say that God's not gracious, because this is generation after generation, prophet after prophet, hundreds of years that God has been patient and gracious with Israel. And then we finally get to this point where exile happens, and still, after all of this that goes on, God goes to Israel, and some of the first words out of his mouth directly to them are, I am still the God of Israel. I have not forgotten my own faithfulness to my covenant promises to you. And don't miss this. God joins himself to Israel going all the way back to the Exodus as the God who has saved Israel and made her who she is. And even in the midst of her unfaithfulness, God pursues her and stays faithful to her. And so as you see these two titles together, Lord of hosts and God of Israel together, what you see is there is justice, but there is also hope. In fact, God at the beginning, we saw this last week in in Jeremiah chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, you're going to deliver a message of judgment and a message of hope to the Israelite people in exile. And what you see in the very beginning of this letter is that message, is a representation of that message of judgment and hope being held together. Judgment and God's grace. And there's hope for Israel because God, has not ch- because God has chosen not to give up on her and to join himself to her because of his grace. So for God to call himself the God of Israel was God saying, I haven't given up on my covenant promises to you. Even though you've broken the covenant, even though you've been unfaithful, you've sinned over and over again and been unjust, I'm still going to be faithful to my side, to my promises. That's a huge point, really, that can't be overstated. Because if God doesn't come to Israel in their exile, in this case, they're left completely without hope. There's no hope they're getting back to their land. There's no hope they're ever getting out of exile. And there's no hope without God's initiative here, without God's grace, without God's restoration of the relationship, that they're even going to be God's people anymore in relationship with him. This was a huge statement. But here's one more amazing thing. It's with these two titles where God introduces himself in this letter that God is actually telling the entire story of the Bible. And this is actually where this begins to impact us today. 
And you might say, well, telling the entire story of the Bible, how does he tell the entire story of the Bible with just these two titles? Well, let me explain. When God says something about himself in this context, he is also saying something about Israel in these titles. And as he says something about Israel in these titles, by connection, he is also saying something about all of humanity. And that's something, by the way, that God often does in his word when he introduces himself as some as, as the God Almighty or the God Most High or the Lord of Hosts or the God of Israel, he's actually saying something about his relationship with Israel and his relationship with his people, his relationship with humanity as well. And that's happening in this case. And here it is in simple terms. He is calling Israel both exiles as well as priests. The exile part is probably clear. We've talked about that repeatedly over and over again, right? And, and all it means to be an exile is that it means that you've been expelled from your homeland and now you are living in a place that is not your home. That's a simple general definition for what it means to be an exile. And Israel is experiencing that right, right now by being in Babylon. But how, how, so how Israel are exiles is pretty straightforward. But how about priests? How exactly are Israel priests? Well, if we go back again to Exodus chapter 19, where God establishes the covenant with Israel, Right? And it, we just saw that in 19.5, right? If you obey my commands, if you keep my covenant, you will be a treasured people. You will be my people. The very next verse, he says this to them. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So in other words, when God establishes the covenant with Israel all the way back after the Exodus, he also gives them a calling and an identity. He says, you're to be kingdom of priests in the place where you end up, in this case, in the land. As God reemphasizes that title as the covenant God of Israel here in Jeremiah 29, what he's saying is that that calling, that covenant relationship, that identity still exists even though you're outside of the land. You may be in exile, but I'm re-emphasizing again Israel's call to be kingdom of priests. That's what he's saying through Jeremiah, even as they're in exile. Now, the real question is, what is exactly significant about being a priest, especially being a priest in exile? Well, just as we define what it means to be in exile, like be out of your land, be compelled to live somewhere else, let's define what it means to be a priest, biblically speaking. In general, the role of a priest in the Bible, just in general terms, was to represent God and to lead other people to worship God, right? And so when you look in the temple system, for example, you see a certain kind of office called a priest. And the Levites and the priests were responsible for taking care of the temple, for administering the sacrifices, and essentially leading people into worship and taking care of the place where people would meet with God. Uh, by the things that they wore, by the garb that they wore, and the different outfits and the stones and all these different things that they wore on their chest, they were to represent who God was, so when you put these two images together, then exile and priest, what we see is that God is calling his people to continue to represent him even in Babylon. That they're called to worship God while they're in exile, but they're also called to lead people to worship him while they're there. In this case, the Babylonians. These enemies who have dragged them off brutally into exile, God calls them to continue to be priests. Represent me and lead the Babylonians in to the worship of the one true God. So that's Israel's calling here in Jeremiah. The question for us becomes, how does that relate to the entire story of the Bible and where we find ourselves as a church? Well, it actually has a lot to say, believe it or not, to directly to each one of us. Because according to the biblical perspective, we are all priests and exiles. 
every single one of us, every single human being is both a priest and an exile. Now, we're different kinds of priests and different kinds of exiles. Let me explain that here as we look at the biblical story. And as we, as we explain this, let's take a little bit of a journey through the biblical story, a quick journey, a journey about priests in exile, which I'm sure is something that you've always wondered about. I'm sure you're probably thinking today, I hope he talks about the story of the biblical story of the journey of priests in exile. That's you, it's your lucky day. But here's the thing, this is, this is good, this is really good stuff, trust me. If we back all the way back up into the creation narrative in Genesis, what we see is that all people are created in the image of God. Now, among other things that that means, to be created in the image of God, it means to represent God, and it means to lead others into worship. That's, that's at least a couple of things that are contained in that understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God. That's a big thing, but at least those two things are contained in that. In other words, originally human beings were created as representations of who God is. We're, we're, we're supposed to reflect God's image towards one another and towards creation. And then as we fellowship with God and our creator God, the idea is that we lead the rest of creation into the worship and the glorifying of God as well. As we, as we fulfill our call to flourish, to be fruitful and multiply, to keep and take care of the creation that God has given us, all these things are ways of leading the rest of creation into the worship of God, and God is glorified as a result to the degree in which we follow that calling. That was the original design. So in that sense, every person who has ever created Uh, has the image of God in them, and because they have the image of God in them, they were created originally to be priests. In their book, Becoming Whole, Kelly Capick and Brian Fickert describe it this way. They actually describe it as priestly kings, which is kind of picking up on language from Exodus 19 that we just saw. But they say this, the Garden of Eden was far more than just a place where Adam and Eve watered plants and cared for animals. It was a temple garden in which the first humans served as priests and kings. As priests, they were to protect the temple from any corruption and lead others into worship of the one true God. As kings, they were to promote the welfare of others and the rest of creation by ruling as God's assistant rulers. That's how the story begins. But as you know, there's a big however in the middle of this story. And the however is this. Human beings abandoned their creator's priestly calling and decided to write their own story and pursue their own calling. And when they did this, As a result of their sin, exile happened for the first time. Human beings were kicked out of their original home, out of the Garden of Eden, and were exiled into the world that was now shrouded in darkness and brokenness and sin and death. And we see that happen in Genesis 3. So if you read the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, you see all of this happen. That human beings are both priests and exiles, and that's the foundation of the story of human history. That's what the Bible is telling us. And we're made to be priests, but we live in exile, all of us. And none of us are at home in the way that we were made to be. But again, just like God didn't give up on Israel when they were in exile, he didn't give up on human beings who were in exile as well. And as you continue to read through the book of Genesis, what you see is that things get worse and worse and worse until we eventually get to the flood during Noah's time. And then we get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11. And what you see happen there is that as a result, exile happens again. Tower of Babel happens, God scatters everyone out of Babel all over the, all over the earth, and another exile happens. And it's the middle of that exile that God picks one man, a man by the name of Abram who becomes Abraham, 
and settles him in a land and says, in the land that will eventually become Israel, and says that a nation will come from you out of this exile who will be blessed to be a blessing to the world. And that's exactly who Israel was supposed to be. A kingdom of priests right in the middle of the center of all the other nations, living in a land flowing with milk and honey, living out this countercultural representation of a kingdom of priests in, in, in the world around them. Ezekiel actually says that, or God says this through Ezekiel in chapter 5. Listen to what God says about where he placed Israel and what they were supposed to be, and then in the end, how they ended up failing in that calling. Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the, na- than the nations around her, and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you, and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and you've not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. So here Israel is, right, in covenant relationship with God, given the Mosaic law so that they could live a certain way, not just spiritually, but also socially, that would produce this counterculture that looks like a kingdom of priests among a world that is looking, that that is in exile all around them. And to the degree to which they do that, the idea is that the nations would be attracted to God. They would see the God of Israel and they would come into the land and worship him as well. But in other words, it was a recommissioning of the original calling from the Garden of Eden. But of course, just like Adam and Eve, um, just like Adam and Eve abandoned their calling, Israel abandoned her calling as well. And they abandoned their priesthood, their calling to be priests, and as a result, all the other nations around them ended up consuming them. Now, here's where the story takes an interesting turn. We get to a place in exile in Babylon. And this happens in Jeremiah for the first time. We have the words from God in Jeremiah 29 telling the exiles, you're going to be in the land for 70 years, you're not going right back. And what he's done in this case is he has said to them, look, I gave you the land, I gave you the law, I gave you the physical kingdom, and I gave you a calling, I gave you the temple, I gave you all of it, and I called you to be my kingdom of priests and all of that. In the middle of all the other nations, I set you right there as my kingdom of priests, and you didn't go out to the nations to bring them in. You didn't glorify me by what you did as priests who are supposed to represent God to the nations and call them to worship me. And so I'm going to put you right in the middle of another, of another kingdom. I'm going to put you right in the middle of exile and give you that same calling again. You're not behind the walls of the city anymore. You're not behind the walls of the temple anymore. I'm calling you out to exile, to be the same people that I've called you to be from the beginning. And you may know this, but if not, spoiler alert, Israel still doesn't follow their calling even after exile. Even after they return, which they ultimately do after about 70 years, they return under the Persian kingdom back to Israel, a big percentage of them do. Even in that case, they don't follow God's calling. So what happens after all this? Well, probably the best development in the story to this point, the story of the Bible. God sends his own priest. He sends his son Jesus, the one who comes to accomplish all of it. 
And this is where it all comes together. This is where it becomes our story for the church today. Author Amy Sherman describes it this way. The story of Israel is the backdrop to the redemption chapter of the Bible's big story. We miss critical insights about Jesus' mission and our mission in that chapter when Jesus' story is delinked from the story of Israel. Jesus came not only to be God in this world in his divinity, but he also came in his humanity to be the perfect fulfillment of a royal priest. He faithfully takes up the vocation that we sinful, selfish, idolatrous humans abandon. In other words, Jesus becomes an exile and an exile priest himself, coming from heaven to be the ultimate priest on our behalf, the high priest among us who takes us who are exiled from God's kingdom out of the kingdom of darkness and into his glorious kingdom because he is the exile priest. And then he gives us a new recommissioning again as the church. Jesus calls us again to be kingdom of, uh, a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race. And this is Peter talking to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, our priest, our high priest, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who has called you out of exile back into the calling that God has, has designed you for and redeemed you for. Notice how similar the language is between what Peter says here in 1 Peter 2 and Exodus uh, chapter 19 that we read before. He uses the exact same terms from the Exodus as a recommissioning. This is who you are to be, exile priests in the world that you live in, just like it was from the beginning. Except this time, it's not a physical land that is home. It's the community of people who live for and through the kingdom of God. It's not a physical temple in a city. Instead, it's walking and talking little temples who have the law of God written on their hearts and the very spirit of God indwelling them as they live in this world, as they live as exiles in Babylon. Who don't just call people to come in, but are exiles who are called to go out into Babylon. And the church's calling is the same as Israel's calling as exiles, to pray for the city and seek the flourishing of the city. As a church, it's to recognize that we are each people who have lived this same story as well. We are people who have been rescued from the ultimate exile, the exile of the kingdom of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of God by the ultimate priest who is Jesus. It's our calling to remember that, that just as Israel was chosen by God's grace and established by God's grace and redeemed and rescued by God's grace, we in the same way are established by God's grace through Jesus Christ, brought to God through the grace of Jesus Christ. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are made whole again and redeemed. And as a result, we are given the Spirit of God to be people who follow that same calling in the world. And just in that same way, we're called to be a kingdom of priests who represent Jesus to the world. As exile priests, going out into other exiles to call those exiles to come home. To call them to be the priests that God designed them to be. That is flourishing. That's what flourishing looks like. Again, Amy Sherman says, what are we made for? This existential question, what are human beings made for? Flourishing. How has God designed that to happen? by giving us the vocation of the royal priesthood. When we live in Christ as the priest kings we were always meant to be, we experiencing flourishing ourselves and we contribute to the flourishing of others, both in the church and out into the world. 
And we're going to spend the rest of our series then talking about what it looks like to really live out in practical terms the priest-kingly calling that we've been called to, priests in exile. There's so many different practical ways that you might imagine that this works out. We're going to talk about those practical ways through this series. But this is why we started last week with this idea of flourishing. And I asked you, not only define flourishing, but I asked you to, you know, as a homework assignment, to just kind of think of ways in which you have seen flourishing happen in your lives. And a lot of you responded. We had a lot of you send in pictures and hashtag North Flourishes and did that whole thing. And we saw a lot of great examples of this. Like we saw some great examples of people who were on vacation, but not just like any old family vacation, but they were kind of gathering together to, to really celebrate what God was doing in their lives and looking forward to what was about to come as like the school season started. The really intentional vacations. Those are fantastic. We saw people who were talking about, they went on mission trips and they sent pictures of their team that they were with as they're flourishing on the other side of the world or in other places within our state. We saw couples who would go to local outreach together and see flourishing happen there. We saw one instance where uh, somebody talked about uh, being able to come alongside or having other families come alongside them as they adopted a child a few years ago and saw that as uh, evidence of God flourishing. Now, you guys really hit a home run with all these. I must be a really good teacher because you guys really understood what flourishing was. I appreciate that. It was awesome. And that's not why I did that, please. It's a joke. But here's the reason why, really, I asked you to at least, at least think about that. Because when we form a vision for what flourishing is supposed to look like, that's the first step to understand what does it mean for God to say that he wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing, or he wants to flourish us so that we can be a people who seek the flourishing of the city who is around. We have to understand what that means so that then we can take the next step, which is to go out into the world to form a vision for what it takes for others to flourish, for our cities, for our communities, for those in need, for those who need to know God's flourishing good news message in Jesus. And flourishing is a calling. It's the calling to flourish from God and then to seek the flourishing in our city, in our Babylon. Have you ever noticed how much people, uh, nearly all people, love a good redemption story? You know what I'm talking about? Like, so many, of our, so many of our best movies and TV shows ever made, some of the best books ever written in human history, have at their core at least this idea of a redemption story. Human beings just love redemption stories. One of my favorite series of all time was a documentary series that aired uh, on VH1. And uh, it was really popular in the late 90s and early 2000s. Some of you are smiling because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you love this series as well. Behind the music, right? You're behind the music fans? Okay. Anyway, if you're not, let me explain to you what, what it is. Essentially, VH1, which I don't even know if VH1 exists anymore, but I'm a big music fan, and so I, but, but I love those behind the music. Basically, what behind the music was is they would take a band, or they would take a musician, and through a documentary kind of format, they would tell the story of their life. And so every single episode was essentially the same, and they were all, at their core, a redemption story. They would start with this idea of like, this is where this person kind of grew up, and this is how they kind of got their roots, and this is how they began to enjoy music. And then they form the band together, and then inevitably something happens with the band where it all kind of falls apart at one point. That happened with so many rock bands in the 70s, 80s, 60s, whatever it may be, right? And so whoever's being profiled there, like inevitably that happens. So there's like jealousy that goes on in the band, or, you know, somebody's doing too much, too many drugs, and then there's addiction and these, all these other things. But then on the other side, like the, the episode always ends the same way. It ends with this redemption piece. 
So this band that had broken up years ago, right, and a couple of people who had, you know, maybe a part of the band who had addictions, like they're now in rehab and they've got kids and families. And by the way, the band's on now a reunion tour, right? And they've gotten back together and everybody lives happily ever after. And that series was so popular because it was a, technically it was a documentary, but at the same time, it told a story every single episode. And it told a story of redemption. They used the same formula in almost every single episode. So that whether you knew the band or whether you knew the musician or not, it was popular with so many people because we all starved for a good redemption story. In fact, I, I even watched the Backstreet Boys behind the music. Do I look like a Backstreet Boys fan to you? Don't, 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 don't answer that. Don't answer that. I'm not. Let's, let me go on the record by saying I'm not. But the same thing happened. Like, there's this redemption story. And here's the thing is that the Bible gave us the, gives us the greatest redemption story ever written. Priests who become exiles, who are then redeemed by the ultimate priest, who goes into exile to bring us home so that we can live our original design and original calling in our eternal home with our Creator God. It's a beautiful, wonderful redemption story. It's the ultimate of redemption stories. So as we close this morning, I've got a little, another response that I'd like you to consider this morning. Maybe a bit of a homework assignment. Maybe you can just kind of think about it even as you're sitting here this morning. What is your story of exile and rescue? What is your redemption story? How have you personally experienced the priestly work of Jesus bringing you out of exile and bringing you back home? What does that look like for you? Do you have that story? What does your redemption story look like? And as you think about how you would communicate that, here's really, I guess, the assignment for this week. Find somebody that you know that has never heard that story from you before and tell them that story. Tell them your redemption story. It could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be maybe even a coworker if you know them well. Maybe you can't do it in the you know, office, but maybe you go out to lunch or something. But take an opportunity to just tell your story. Tell your redemption story. Let's pray and give thanks to what God, for what God has done. Lord, we want to thank you this morning, realizing and knowing that, of course, the greatest redemption story, the thing that every single human being on this planet aches for, whether they, whether they realize it or not, is redemption. The reason why these stories uh, that are all around us all the time, whether they're in media or movies or entertainment that we watch, strike such a chord with so many of us, is because we are aching for redemption. We know that something is wrong intuitively. We know that we were meant for something else, for another home intuitively. For many of us, we're like exiles searching in the dark. But Lord, I'm thankful that you have brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light for those of us who know Jesus. I'm thankful for the ultimate exile priest who stepped out of heaven and came to this earth so that he could make a priestly sacrifice on our behalf, that he could show us who God is and then lead us into the worship of the one true God as we're reconciled through him. And even as he sits as high priest, even now over his church, he calls us out the same way to be a kingdom of priests in exile. 
And Lord, I pray that for those of us who know that redemption story and we can say that that is the story of my life, that Lord, you would solidify that in our hearts. You would help us uh, to cling to that as our life story and our life's identity. And that as we go out into this world, Lord, that we would be people who proclaim that story, to call the exiles that haven't come home back home. And Lord, would you do it through our lives, through this church, through the witness of this place. And would you do it by your spirit, by your power. And Lord, would you make us people who are ever more faithful to the call. Then more than anything, the thing that matters most to us is that we are a redeemed kingdom of priests. who display Jesus to the world. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website, at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. This is typically the part where I come back up and give you a charge to go live what we just talked about, but that song right there did it perfectly. From time to time we sing a song that's just like, oh man, that is right on the money. Here I am, Lord, send me. That's all. That's what it's about. So I want to encourage you as you leave here this morning, the Zaratis are our prayer partners. If you need prayer, they'd be happy to pray with you as you leave here this morning. Uh, We have our prayer request cards that are located at the table with the cross on it. If you fill those cards out, if you have prayer requests, we want to pray for you. We want to join you in prayer. You can drop those in the offering stand as you leave here this morning, and we'll be praying with you and for you for your prayer requests that you list on that card. Until then, Lord, here we are. Send us out. We go this week. Have a great week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website, at northbiblechurch.com.